It's hard to get students to understand what learning is if what you're actually imposing on them is a regime to get that grade. And so, yes, they'll go out to an employer and say, see, here's my grades. But the employer who relies on grades is not aware of what he's actually getting. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you're listening on a smart speaker or website, make sure to find me on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts, Google, TuneIn, and Stitcher. We're momming today with Professor Richard Wolf, a professor emeritus of economics at uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor at the New School University in New York City. What you uh, you're kind of against grades, what every kid, what every mother out there might want to want to hear. Do you actually grade your students? Yes, because it's usually a requirement of my job and I don't want to lose my job. So I've always given the grades, but I've always explained to students that their instinct, which almost all students have, that there's something wrong here, that the complications of their learning process and the subtlety of what they're trying to master and understand isn't very well captured by at the end of the semester saying, well, you're a B plus or you're a C minus or whatever the grade is, that there's something unacceptably shortcut-like in all of this. What they would like to do, and I felt this way when I was a student, they would like to have a chance to show in a one-on-one with the teacher what they know. Let the teacher decide, well, you're strong here, but you don't have that down. But it's a subtle thing. It's something that should take a teacher a good hour to think about after the conversation and write a little thing, two pages, nothing long, that says here are what this student really gets and here are what – a B-plus doesn't convey any of it. Are you suggesting this idea in only college or in high school and grammar school? Well, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd say it was all the way through. And, you know, there are schools, particularly schools that rich people send their kids to Which that do ones? exactly that. Let me give you an example. Up in UMass, where I spent most of my adult life being a professor, we have something called the five-college system. There are five colleges that work together, UMass, Amherst College, Mount Holyoke College, Smith College, and Hampshire College. One of those five, Hampshire, doesn't have grades. You get a little essay, just like I described, Mm -hmm. from your professor for each course you take. And if you're going on to graduate school, you present the graduate school with a little portfolio, a little bit like an artist. Are those students getting into better graduate schools and getting better jobs as a result? No better, but no worse. You know, Pew just came out with a a study, and they found that 50% of us believe that universities have a positive effect on society, just 50%. So it it seems the the psyche of the nation has changed about college, how much money we spend to put our kids in college, how much debt, $1.6 trillion, uh, those students take out, and then the quality uh, and the salary (laughs) uh, of the job that, that they get. And then you put that whole... Operation Varsity Blues scandal in there, um, and and you see how uh, the, the system isn't always just. Are we are we gonna not go to college in the future? Well, I think you're pointing to a very real phenomena. Um, I wouldn't say that the college experience has changed all that much in terms of what you get and the teaching, but you're absolutely right. The cost of it has got 
astronomical. If you, I'm an economist, so I study those things. The rate of price increases of goods in general is much slower than what the cost of college has mm-hmm. become so that it's an outlier. It's like health care and things like that have gone crazy. So, of course, people are wondering, my goodness, if what we get in the school hasn't changed all that much, if the job and the income we're likely to get hasn't changed all that much, but the cost has gone nuts, of course you have to rethink it, mm-hmm. especially at a time when people are feeling pinched economically in all these different ways. But let me again wear my economics hat. It is a very dangerous thing in this world to have half your people, your statistic, feeling ambivalent about going to school. Why? Because what we agree on, we don't agree on much in economics, but what we agree on is that the future of the United States in the world economy, in a tough, competitive world economy, will depend on the quality and quantity of the young people coming out of our education system more than on any other single variable. It Mm -hmm. depends on many things, but that's a big one. And if we provide an incentive, which is what's happening, to people to not go, excuse me, to to think again about it, to, Mm -hmm. to look for alternatives, we are, to be blunt, shooting ourselves economically in the foot. We are hurting ourselves. That's a very dangerous thing. And I don't want to overdo it, but if you look at China, it's exactly the opposite. They're subsidizing. There are no debts. They subsidize. They build schools ahead of the demand. It's an enormous investment, which is one of the reasons why technologically they have been catching up to us and they are promising to surpass us. I just read on my way over here about the latest electric car that the Chinese are producing, $9,000 by U.S. thing. It will get you now an electric car with a range of 200 miles. It's extraordinary. And I think it's a warning sign that we ought to rethink how we are pricing education because the negative consequences that flow from it. I wasn't going to do this, but I am. Uh, Politically, is the president, is the White House, is the – Attack on China, the trade war with China, worth it? I have a real simple answer. I don't think so. I think that the damage done here to both sides, to the Chinese. <clears throat> but they're stealing our intellectual property. Well, you know. They're subsidizing. Their, their whole Made in China 2025 plan, they're trying to overtake us as the world Absol- power. Are we just going to let that happen? Well, you know, let me give an example from American history. When we began, we began as a colony of Great Britain. Great Britain was the power of the world. We were just a little corner of their colonial empire. We developed, and as we developed, we decided we didn't want them to control us anymore. We wanted our own. We had a war of independence, 1776 and all that. And they didn't like that, the British. They didn't want to lose this colony. They had making a lot of money off of it. We had a follow-up war in 1812 because they were still angry and fighting They ended up by that attitude in making the United States really push back and go its own way. Whatever might have happened in the relationship between the United States and Britain didn't. And in the end, they were unable to stop the United States from not only catching up but now becoming, you know, the dog and the tail. So we can't stop China. We can't. It's it's, It's been tried by every empire, every powerful nation imagines it is going to stop history. So my advice is come to terms with this. 
figure out ways to live together. We were doing real well for the last 25 years. You know, let me give you an example that Americans can understand. The Chinese were able to make many, many things, either better quality or lower price or both. That's why many of us are wearing clothing made in China or using a toaster or a clock or now a car. That helped American standard of living. We were able to buy more things with the money we got because the Chinese filled up. There is no Walmart, for example, without China. That's how Walmart became a great thing. They were the distributor of everything made in China. Okay, that was a way where we benefited. Walmart became the biggest corporation in the world. Mm-hmm. The United States working class had stuff it could buy you know, in a, in a discount store, et cetera, et cetera. I think the best chance to avoid the danger that trade wars can sometimes become military wars, and I don't even want to go there, but even without that scary prospect, I think we're better off coming to terms mm-hmm. – Demanding things in exchange for what we get, but wow, that's a better plan than this effort, which is making enemies not only about the Chinese. People have to understand that. Again, the economics. The whole rest of the world is shaped by this. Europe is very upset because they're hurting too, and they're not even in the fight. Yeah. Good topic. I want to get back to college, though, for a second. Um, And, you know, if you put your your father cap on, your parent Mm -hmm. cap on— what is your advice to, to families who are weighing options for their children about to go to college? Well, I feel for them. I think it's a, an, an awful position we've put them into. They really can't afford it. What many of them are doing so far is not making the decision, don't go to college. And the reason they're not is because the job market is not good out there. And if you try to get a job without college, you're immediately at a disadvantage. Do you think it's still like that? Yeah. A lot of the younger people who work here at Fox News uh, who just come in from college, they say a lot of the applications that they're filling out, um, the the ads that they're responding to say instead of college uh, degree uh, required, required, it's now preferred. They changed required to preferred. I mean, is that a step in a different direction? Well, here's the problem. Most employers that are doing that are doing that because they think, and they may be right, that they can pay a person without college less for the same job okay? because the college creates an expectation. You went to college, you got your BA, you played by the rules, and now you'd like an income at this level. But if you don't have one, the recruiter or the personnel manager can say to you, well, uh, we do pay this. You you see what that kind of – so anyway, to go back, the parents are in a terrible position and most of them have understood what we've just said and so they want the kid to go to school. And so the resolution is debt. That's why the debts, the student debt, is now bigger totally in this mm-hmm. country than all credit card debt. And that's in a very small time. We've had credit cards for 40, 50 years. We right. haven't had student debt for about 25, so really in a big way. So for me, the real overhang here is the debt and the stories that are accumulating by people who are in debt when they're in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. We're putting off life decisions. Exactly. They're not you getting married. You might have your adult children living with you because of their exactly. student debt, they can't afford to buy you know, their the house. You know, the statistics corroborate what you're saying. The number of young people living with their parents beyond age 20, 25, 30, 35 is going off the chart because people are having to economize. I would argue that, yes, it's probably better to go to school and – with debt than not to go to school at all in terms of the long run. 
But this is a choice we should not be making our young people and their parents face. So what's the this solution? Is, the solution is to do what – well, let me give you an example. It answers your question. I go to Germany from time to time to give lectures and stuff like that. I also speak German because of my background. Um, in Germany, all tuition at all colleges and universities is zero free. Not just for German students, for anyone. Anyone listening to this program, for example, any American citizen, can go to Germany, enroll in a German university, get your college degree. You will have to pay for your your upkeep, you know, your room, your board, board, and all of that. But there are no tuition costs, no fees. Germany is the most successful economy in all of Europe. It's the, it's what really the engine that keeps Europe going. And I think that's an alternative that we ought to understand. I think we all benefit from having an educated, skilled labor force. I mean, and, can you imagine Harvard or Yale or some of our pristine institutions saying, oh, yeah, tuition's free? Because don't they lose their prestige in doing that? Well, let me give you an answer. Um, and, you know, for to be honest about it, I went to Harvard and I went to Yale. Both of them. I got my <laughs> BA at Harvard and I got my PhD in economics at Yale. So I'm a graduate of these places. Um, and you're not a snob. I try not to be. <laughs> it takes a little effort afterwards to get out of that box. Um, you know, just because it's an important point. When I was a freshman just coming to Harvard without knowing really what it was all about, uh, we had an orientation a week, <clears throat> the week before classes started. So we, they got us in a big auditorium, and the president of Harvard got up to welcome us to the university. And he said, and in those years, since I'm older, it was only men. The women were at a place called <clears throat> Radcliffe up the street. And the man said, look to the man on your left. And we all turned. And look to the man on your right. And one of them, he said, will be a senator, and the other one will be a captain of industry. I want you to understand, he said. And then he had a pregnant pause. We are training you to rule the world. And I remember thinking, my God, my head, which was big, is now getting larger and larger. This is a sense of your identity at these places that gives you a, their self-image. He wasn't kidding. He wasn't making a funny. He was talking what he thinks the world is like. So, yeah, they might not like it. But let's remember, because I'm an expert on this as it happens, uh, Harvard's endowment is $36 billion. Yale's is not much behind that, maybe $20, 25000000000 billion. There is no school in the United States except maybe Princeton or University of Texas that has that kind of money. They could afford to reduce their tuition and it would be a blip in their wallet. It is not – that's not what they depend on. They don't need it. One of the reasons they actually give scholarships fairly frequently is because they don't need it. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Can the, they afford no grades? Because that's expensive. So. It's a more it expensive way to teach if you're not grading. Right. That's a bigger problem. That's a bigger problem than doing without the tuition payments from people. Because they would have to pay. They'd have to pay my time as a professor to sit down with a student and do it. 
But, I mean, it comes down to do you care about the quality of your education? If I give a student a B plus, it's an infinitely less valuable help to that student than sitting down with him or her and really spending a little bit of time saying, you know, you did this really well. You have skill and talent here. But over here you're having problems. Maybe that's because you didn't do it. But really engage with – we don't do that. Yeah. And as a result, the quality of our education – and the quality of the skill and training that people bring to their work is less than what it could be. Americans it, are every bit as clever and as is, smart as anybody else, but you got to give them the education they need. Is this because at the get-go, from the very beginning, it's a government program, right? School is a government curriculum, a state curriculum, and it's typically union-backed. Uh, Does that have anything to do with it? I don't think so. Here's the statistic. the statistics. About three-quarters of the people who graduate from college and university go to public schools. About one-quarter go to private schools. But the private schools pre-existed the public. In other words, we didn't have much in the way of uh, at higher education. I'm not talking about high school or mm-hmm. lower. But in terms of college and universities, we didn't have much of that for the public until after World War II. So it's, it's really relatively new. After World War II, we built massive public higher education. For example, at UMass where I taught – the building next to mine was where the agricultural school was because that's what they had before, how mm-hmm. to help farmers learn. After World War II, they expanded much, much bigger to become a general liberal arts and specialty university. So we had public higher education after private, and they modeled themselves on the private. UMass tries to be like Harvard or MIT or the private schools in the other part of the state. That's true in every – whatever the United States was. So our basic structure of education was developed in the private sector. And remember, before World War II, only a tiny percentage of young people went to college. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's only after the war that it became a kind of thing that everybody wanted for their children to live better or to have a better job than they did. So I think if you want to change it, you've got to deal with the structure that the private bequeathed, if you like, to the public. What what advice would you give, and we'll take this through the stages, to you know the new parents who are about to send Junior off to kindergarten? Well, I, I'd give them compassion. I'd say here, here's two things to do. If you have to make the decision, I think, and you know, I'm a parent of two children myself, both of whom went to college. Highly educated. Uh, yeah. Um, as their dad. But I, I, I thought I owed that to them. It's like, you know, I owed them food on the table. I owed them a visit to the doctor when they needed it. That's part of what you sign up for. So you're saying to get them into the best school no matter what it costs you? Pretty much. That was my wife's and my attitude. That that was a fundamental thing. And how did you evaluate that school, though? What questions did you ask? What questions should we be asking right now, even sending our kids to kindergarten? Well, for example, I would... Put a lot of emphasis on as much information as you can get about the relationship between the student and the teacher. Do we pack 500 kids? Sizes. Well, I mean, part of it, but you know, small is, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Does it, is the teacher rewarded? How many classes do you require a teacher to teach? Hmm. How much non classroom time is a teacher called upon to provide to a student who has a question or a problem or a, a, a project he or she wants to engage? Do you provide that? Is that really part of your curriculum? Are students given situations that the school encourages? 
to teach each other, to do things together in groups where you, because a student can teach another student as well as a teacher in the right setting. A a lot of people, and I'll use my mother and my brother, they're both elementary school teachers, well, my brother, high school. Um, but, But there's a complaint that they're required now to teach how to think that they're not teaching the fundamentals. You know, the joke always is, you know, you went to Catholic grammar school and you, you memorized. That's how you learned. And the schools aren't doing that memorization, that repetition anymore. They're encouraging the free thinking, but the kids aren't learning. Yeah, I mean, we have serious problems, not only of the sort we've been discussing, but in the very act of teaching. L- let me make it as dramatic as I can. I've Please. spent my I've met I spent <laughs> my entire life being a teacher. I mean, I graduated, got my PhD at Yale, and went right into teaching. <clears throat> in my case, at the university level. Now, teaching is an art. It's a skill. It's a highly developed thing. Was I ever trained how to teach? Never. Hmm. No one requires a PhD after he or she gets that degree, whatever the subject to stop, say, for a semester and take a bunch of courses in the School of Education, which is on every major campus, on how to do this. No. There's some magical assumption in America that if you've been good enough to get a PhD, ipso facto, you can convey it to others. That's not true. That's not correct. I I had to learn, plunged in there, how to teach, and not everybody is designed for that. So is that where your no grading idea comes in? Because you can study to get that A+, but that might be all you know, exactly what you studied. But the issue I I have with that, and I'm I'm sure you've heard this from several people, is that how do we evaluate uh, students and, and eventually workers in different parts of the country when there's no grade attached to it? How do we compare? Well, you know, again, it's like I think a discriminating in the good sense employer would want to know more about a prospective employee than a list of of grades. You know, you hit upon something before that's really important. If you have grades as the be-all and end-all, then you begin to incentivize the teacher and the student to go for that grade, to to study for the grade. But, you know, that's not learning. That's memorizing. That's gearing yourself up. That's staying up all night, the night before the exam to ace the – but, you know, you don't learn that way. And But it's hard to get students to understand what learning is if what you're actually imposing on them is a regime to get that grade. And so, yes, they'll go out to an employer and say, see, here's my grades. But the employer who relies on grades is not aware of what he's actually getting because that student's capability are not reflected. I I, I hear that. But then when I select my doctor, for instance, I check their bio. What school, what medical school did they go to? Were they top of their class? I want my doctor to go to Harvard and have the highest grade possible. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, wait a minute. There is. I... you got to keep two things separate. Do you want to have an evaluation available to you when you choose a doctor or a school or anything else? Absolutely. I agree on that. The argument is whether the grading system provides you with the basis of a good evaluation. Let me use Harvard since I'm a graduate, so I'm not talking about something I don't know. Alongside me at Harvard, there were all kinds of young men, because it was still 
men and women separated those days. There were all kinds of people who didn't want to study anything. They were not there to learn. They were there because in their family, people went to Harvard. Their father did. Their grandfather did. They had a lot of money. The parents wanted them to have that pedigree exactly right. So they were there. They weren't interested. They didn't want to do this. They were unhappy people. And some of them are still to this day my good friends. They shouldn't have been there. This was not for them. Not only did they get very little out of it, but they blocked another person who would have died for the opportunity from having to. That's not an effective system. Now, those people got what we called at Harvard a gentleman's C. There was an unspoken rule at Harvard that if you didn't completely bomb every exam and refuse to hand in a paper, you got the so-called gentleman's C. And if you smiled a lot, you might even get a gentleman's B. Uh, Okay, so now you are from Harvard and you have a B average and you run around the world and an awful lot of people say, oh, we went to Harvard, I was a B. But there's nothing there. Because he wasn't interested. He didn't give himself to that. Mm -hmm. He maybe had a hobby. He maybe had a girlfriend that was his passion or whatever. But the learning process wasn't there. And had we had a good evaluation process, there's a nice way of saying to a prospective employer, this is a very personable young man. This is a very energetic. But, you know, when it comes to mastering, it's not his thing. That would be a useful – it would even be useful to him to have someone say that to him mm-hmm. because it might help him avoid making choices later that are going to make him very unhappy. Do, do you think these top-notch schools are losing their prestige as, as our psyche as a nation is changing? Um, do, no, because I think what they've learned how to do and both Harvard and Yale, the places I know – by the way, between and Harvard Columbia and Columbia and Princeton. Well, between and, Harvard you know, and Yale, I went to Stanford. So, I mean it's a joke. I have 10 years of this kind of place in my life. They all have big departments, big offices devoted to maintaining their image. Mm-hmm. They understand the changing conditions in their society and they understand it's very important for them – to maintain the notion that they are super special places, that something extraordinary happens if you go there. It isn't the case. I am here to tell you <laughs> you can get a good edu- as good an education in a lot of places. But you don't come out with that name. Yeah. And in this country, that name cuts the mustard in ways that it really shouldn't. But for a lot of families they, and a lot of students, they can't even dream of getting that name. So what's your advice to them? What is a better course of action for the average American This is family? the advice I give in my office. You don't know. You're a young man or woman. You're 19, 20, 21 years of age. You're in the middle of college. You don't know because nobody does what the job situation 5, 10, and 15 years from now is. It makes no sense to go and take the courses for what jobs are now because that's not what jobs are going to be five and ten years from now. So don't do that. Don't try to second guess Mm -hmm. the future. None of us can do that. Here's what my advice is. Study what you love. Because you'll be good at it. I hate that advice. I I know because it hurts for those of us that have postponed those things. But the truth is you're going to be good at that because you love it. But sometimes that thing you're good at isn't very employable. That's right. But you You don't know. You need a plan B. But you don't know in advance what is. Yeah. So you're better off. At least you'll be really good at something because not just your brain but your Your heart heart and your passions are really involved. And you'll come out with that skill. You'll find a place. But even if you don't, 
Well, here, think of the alternative. If you second-guess the market, I'm going to major in X. It's not my passion, but it's where the market is. And then the market changes. The demand for jobs shifts. Now you've got nothing. You train for something that isn't there, and you put away and put aside your passions. If you go with your passions, you at least have that. You learned stuff that you will be excited about. Let's say it's, I don't know, film. You really know that whole art form, and mm -hmm. you're into it. Okay, so you have that. that that can't be taken away from you. There's a big debate right now about socialism versus capitalism, um, particularly on the campaign trail. Um, do you, are your students interested in socialism? More than ever. Why? Um, I, I, I think it's fair to say it's not so much the attraction of socialism that makes them interested. It is the disaffection from capitalism. Why are they disaffected? The jobs they thought they were going to get aren't there. Well, what if the they income, had the 4.0 high school GPA them, and they got into Harvard and, you know, even they had— for them. Really? Yeah. Okay, so the jobs aren't there. The jobs aren't there. Or if the job is there, it takes 80 hours a week and doesn't pay very well. Promises maybe after five or ten years. But maybe. isn't that just the American spirit of that grit? You toil, you work. I'll never forget. I graduated from Columbia with my master's degree, and my first salary was $29,000. And I looked at my dad. I was doing the, the job I thought at the time I loved. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And he said, don't worry. You love what you're doing. But there was a disconnect. Good for him. That quality education that he paid for and that $29,000 job did not jive. Right. And that's what's making people disaffected. In a sense, they're saying, and they're right. But I don't I agree went with to socialism. School. Wait a minute. I went to school. I worked real hard. I got reasonable good, good grades. I graduated. I'm ready to work. I'm, I'm got a lot of energy. I'm uh, And I, I was led to believe by my parents, by my religious uh, advisors, by my friends, that I would get a job. I'll use myself as an example. When I went to school in the 60s and 70s, I never worried about a job. I knew going to college, I would get a job. Maybe not the job of my dreams, but I would get a job. I would have an income. I could get married. I could have some children, which I wanted to have. But our, this generation, they don't have that. They're not sure they can get any of those things. And so they're, they're bitter. And it got particularly worse after 2008 when the economy tanked. They're scarred. And they saw their families. They saw their That's parents right. get hurt. That's right. And I can't tell you the number of times I sit in my office at the university, I have a student come in, and they ask me some question about an exam or a paper, and we're done in 15 minutes, we talk. But I can sense they don't want to leave the room, and I say, well, you know. Well, you're entertaining. Yeah, well, I like to tell, <laughs> I say to them, I'd like to know my students, but tell me a little, tell me about yeah. yourself so I get to know you. And the tears come, and the tears come often. Why? Men and women alike. Why? Because, and it's almost the same story. You know, last week I had a call with my parents and we were talking and they were very upset and I knew something was wrong and I asked and they said, look, we can't pay next semester's bill. We just got in the mail from the university. We can't. We can't do it. So either you're going to have to stop and go to work or you're going to have to add to whatever debt you already have another umpteen thousand bucks worth of it. And, you know, I started crying and my parents, they felt terrible that they had to tell me. These stories, these stories are having very profound effects. This is not what this generation was led to believe about the American dream they were supposed to be Should getting we into. Should we erase college debt? 
Well, it would be a major step in that direction. But, you know, I'm an American citizen. But as an economist. How do you? Yeah, as an economist. Here's the thing. It's not so much as an economist. It's as a citizen. Why student debt when there are people who have mortgages? The only way they could raise a family was to get a house and you have to borrow to do that. They have car debt. They have credit card debt to take care of their family. I mean – Debts are an enormous part of life today. Nobody, nobody is free of debt, basically. And it would, it's a little odd to pick out one. I mean, it's a good claim to make that students shouldn't have this burden. But why should anybody else have this burden? I mean, why do we make housing something you can only have if you carry you know, years and years of debt and all that money? I mean, I think it's an economy, and here again, it's capitalism that is making people realize I have this debt, I have that debt, I can't get a good job, I get a job, but it doesn't pay me very These are reasons people are saying, is there something else? Could we have a different system? And, you know, the only other system out there people talk about is socialism. So they're beginning to want to know about it, but it's less the attraction, at least at this point, of a socialist alternative and more the feeling that capitalism at least for this generation, has Failed let them, them down. That's right. You don't sound like a socialist to me, though. Well, let's put it this way. I think for the last 75 years... Is we... that how old you are? No. Okay, I was going to say, because <laughs> no, you no, look no, really no. good, the way <laughs> you phrase you. that. <laughs> yeah, no, but for the last 75 years of American <laughs> history, um, we've had a taboo. I mean, you know, you can't be a socialist. If you're a socialist, people look at you funny, squint at you, figure that maybe you have a disease, they better step away from you, and all of the rest. And so we haven't studied it. We haven't kept up with it. It has changed. And so we're like bears coming out of a hibernation. We're beginning to ask these questions about socialism, but we got some catching up to do. And I think it would be a major disservice to America to not, to keep that taboo going, bad idea. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we could do better than capitalism. One of the good things about America is we like to improve things. We've Mm -hmm. done that a long time. Well, capitalism is something we can also improve on, and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. Professor Wolf, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.